You are now listening to the Superhero Education Podcast, featuring Professor Eugene Pitchford and Dr. Steve Gurner. We are real educators tackling the real topics in education. Listen to be informed, inspired, and entertained. With no further ado, here are your hosts to the Superhero Educators Podcast. All right, we want to welcome everyone to another edition of the Superhero Education Podcast. I am Eugene, and we have Steve here. Steve, what's up, man? It's going well today. I'm excited for our show today. Oh, man, this is one I've, this is one I've been waiting on. This is one I've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And I said, we, like, when we made a list of people that we had to get on, I was like, we got to get Mike on. Like, I've read his book over and over and over and over. And he's a great follow on social media too. I'm just throwing that out there. So like you guys, when we're all done, at the end of the show, Mike, you gotta give your information of how people could follow you or get in touch or whatever projects you got going on. Like we're gonna definitely give you uh, space for that. But I want to introduce Mike Cooperman, one of the baddest authors out here. I mean, his book touches your soul and it's so vividly clear. And I'm just so happy that we have you here. Mike, how you doing? I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm super stoked to be here, honestly. <laughs> hey, now, we, we appreciate you. And, 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 and also, like, with the time differences, it's, it's like you're out there on the West Coast. We're here. So just it sounds simple, but just making sure the time and everything works um, is, 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 a, is a huge deal. And I'm, I'm sure Steve is probably tired of hearing me talk about your book and you. So, so Steve, this is the, this is the guy right here. We're going we gonna to have some, have some fun. You were talking about Mike for a long time, so I think this is uh, going to be a great show. Eugene has been talking about you, Mike, and about your expertise and the work you're doing. So I, we're really excited to have you here. So thank you. All right, so Mike, let's just hop right into it. I want you to give us a little bit of your background, your story, how you got into education, and then then I'll, I'll pivot with some questions while, while you're doing that. So introduce yourself, Mike. Sure. Um, well, let's see. So what's the short version here? Um, I guess the short version is uh, I'm, uh, I'm mixed race, like Asian American and Jewish. Um, I grew up in Eugene, a very, very white, quiet, provincial little college town. Um, and basically because I was like bullied and getting my ass beat all the time in, uh, in public schools, which were mostly white and poor and honestly pretty racist, at least back in the day, uh, I decided I was going to become tough, right? And I found the sport of wrestling. Um, and it took me pretty far. Um, I, uh, I got into Stanford on a wrestling scholarship um, to go play sports. And so I, I got the chance to get a Stanford education. And I joined um, a program called Teach for America, which, you know, lots of people know about. Um, straight out of college, was really idealistic, thought I was going to change the world, um, you know, and rescue children from poverty and all of those sorts of things that you think are possible when you're, when you're young. Um, and I ended up, you know, at age 22, teaching fourth grade self-contained with like a classroom full of 26, 9 to 13-year-old fourth graders. Um, in the role Mississippi Delta. So, um, so, so Mike, let me, let me stop you right there because it's getting good. I'm getting goosebumps. It's getting good. So, so go back just a little bit. Stanford wrestling 
was was education your major? No, I was an English major um, with like, you know, creative writing or something like that. Um, and I don't know if I even had thought very well through what it was I was going to do. <laughs> um, I had no intentions of being or becoming an educator or a teacher. Um, I honestly, the, the truth is, and I didn't even put this in the book because I left her out of it, but I joined Teach for America at the time um, because my girlfriend was joining. <laughs> mm. um, and she was like, this is a great cause. Uh, you know, she had been the education sort of like major and everything. And so I was excited to, to, you know, to be a part of it. I looked into it. I had done some work in social justice on campus. Um, and so, you know, I, I thought somehow that, you know, volunteering in East Palo Alto meant that I understood what I was going to be dealing with in, in rural Mississippi or that I knew anything about how to teach. Um, and so I joined, you know, I joined the program sight unseen, but it really the experience of teaching incredibly poorly <laughs> in Mississippi um, is what made me into an educator. So yeah. teach for America places you in Mississippi. Is that how it, how it works? I think they have something like 27 regions nationwide. Um, a lot of different places, right? And they're almost all schools where there are pretty severe labor shortages, mm-hmm. um, meaning that they have a hard time actually filling those classroom slots. They're, they're largely urban districts, but a lot of them are also rural in some cases, um, places like um, Indian reservations and, um, it, you know, and then rural poverty in places like South Carolina, North Carolina, Arkansas, Mississippi. Um, trying to think about the other one, South Dakota, I think. And did you get to choose? Did you get to say, I I want to be in Mississippi at this time? Well, so I didn't know at the time, I didn't realize that if you said you were willing to go to Mississippi, you were going to Mississippi (laughs) because it was most people's last choice. Because they can't Um, hide, like they have a hard time finding teachers. They have a really hard time finding teachers. And because of Mississippi's reputation, um, you know, the, the Delta, of course, is like a, is, is, is the poorest and blackest part of the poorest and blackest sort of state in the nation. Right. Um, yep. It's, and it's, you know, and it's kind of a place a little bit out of time. I mean, even in a way that um, that doesn't entirely, I think makes sense to most people until you spend some time in rural Mississippi and you sort of see it, you know? So, so I went to college in the Delta of Mississippi. And so it's for our listeners. Here's, let me interpret Mike for Mike a little bit. At the time, that's probably changed now, but at the time, when we went to Walmart on Fridays, that was the club or going out. Um, it's just different. It's just different from city life. And there's strengths and weaknesses, but what I, what I, I agree with Mike, like the poverty, the poverty aspect is totally different. I had never seen like poverty like that before. Um, and so, um, that 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 caught my attention. Now I don't want to give away all your good points to your book, Mike. But you said some things that just to this day that just sticks out. And I don't know which chapter or what page, but you is in the first half of the book where you said, "Here I am in the Delta, and there's a white black thing happening, but you're Asian, and yeah. you, you kind of have to figure out." where you're gonna when you're gonna put your toe in the water and when to take it out of the water and one of the things that just along with that when you wrote about as a kid acting up and in most teachers world hey i'm gonna call the parent 
Steve Gurner is acting up. Uh, Mama and Papa Steve, can y'all just talk with them so we don't keep having these problems in class? I think it was a young lady. And then the person came back the next day or off the suspension or whatever, and you could tell they were beaten. And just the way you wrote it, you were like, okay, did I make the right decision? Did I make the wrong decision? Did I lose the kid's trust? Like, can you just take us through that? Because that just, I was like, oh my God, all teachers go through this. You know, it's a, and it's, a, it's a, such a difficult thing to maneuver. And I was so naive, so I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have any idea what I was doing. Um, and, you know, the particular situation I, I was talking about, I mean, it was, I think some things like that happened that weren't good. I had this idea, you know, you're taught this, right, in sort of like their little teacher training camp, you know, make connections with the community and make connections with the parents. Um, and I happened to be calling the parents of one, one young man who had had a really, I mean, he, he, he had a lot of, a lot of sort of like problems and potentially learning disabilities um, and struggled a lot with sort of anger. And so, you know, he would act up in class and I would call his mother and they wouldn't answer the phone and it would go to like a voice message or whatever. Um, and there wouldn't be any voice message. Like there was no like room on the tape. Um, and it turned out that they had caller ID mm -hmm. um, and no, but they didn't have like any, I don't know, their message machine didn't work or something like that. And so, and she was living with like a, a prison guard out of Parchment Prison <laughs> mm -hmm. who I guess thought that he was going to like be the boy's father or beat some sense into him. And so every time that I was calling, they were, they were beating this young man with a fan belt. Apparently it had been happening for like a period of weeks because I had decided I was really going to make contact and I just wasn't getting a hold of this parent. So I was calling, you know what I mean? Every time I was calling them and then going to the next one. And I was calling, I had this idea I wasn't going to only call about bad things. So I was calling about like, you know what I mean? Dequarius did such a good job in class today. <laughs> you know what I mean? Dequarius like did these good things. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, destroy his trust. I mean, I don't know. It destroyed my sense of faith in what I was doing <laughs> because here I was getting this, this child beat for good things he was doing because I hadn't actually, I wasn't actually communicating with the parent, right? I was sort of intervening with my idea of what it was that they needed. And yeah, I mean, that in my first year, I think that happened about four or five months in. I mean, that was definitely sort of one of my low points. Um, just, you know, looking at the, looking at the welts on this boy's back. Um, yeah. And my principal told me it was my fault, <laughs> oh, no. which was something. Um, well, I mean, you know, she, she wasn't, I know, wrong or right. I mean, I don't know if my fault is the way she said it, but, you know, she, she just sort of said, maybe you shouldn't be so enthusiastic, Mr. Kaufman, about, <laughs> about reaching out to parents. That's a problem in high-performing educators, right? Not enough enthusiasm. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about, we reference your book, Mike. Why don't you just tell us what the book is for our listeners? Sure. So, I mean, it's a book called Teacher. Um, it, I, think it's, I think it's got a subtitle of Two Years in the Mississippi Delta. Um, it's not, not really a book that's about Teach for America necessarily. Um, and it's not only set in Mississippi. It's also about the work that I do today. Um, as an educator and now in college working in diversity retention. Um, it's sort of about how the, the, the experiences that I had in Mississippi of failing of, in fact, you know what I mean, being um, a part of violence that was happening to these kids, a part of a system which is um, in Mississippi, a segregated public school system. And I mean an intensely and intentionally segregated public school system, right? In the sense that there are private white academies for white kids to go to and scholarships so that they make sure that white kids don't 
don't go to school with black kids. Um, working in that system and in that place and then making connections to those kids in their lives, even if I didn't necessarily succeed in educating them, made me eventually into, into someone who felt like I, I needed to invest in, in trying to make the system more just and fair. And also in, in teaching well in ways that I hadn't been able to teach particularly well in Mississippi. Um, and so that's, I guess that's the foundation of the book. It's sort of looking at, really looking at those kids um, as best as I can fairly and squarely, and also looking at myself and the ways that I was culpable and even complicit um, in these sort of savage, savagely unequal systems, um, you know, that I guess we call now the school to prison pipeline and things right. like that. Yeah. I think your book is, is unique because like the, 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 the part about the kid getting in trouble for calling home, like that happens everywhere. But then yep. you add the racial component, and I think that's what separates your work from 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 many others. But you, you, let's go back to Teach for America for a minute. Uh, I, I get into these debates a lot. Of I went through a certification process to um, probably something similar to Teach for America. Um, we, we get into this war of traditional education versus alternative and. One side hates the other, and the other side hates that side. And my position is, whatever it takes to produce a good teacher. Like, where, where do you fall in this argument, this civil war between traditional and alternative ed? Well, so, and you know, and it is such a complicated debate, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Um, I'll tell you what, I, uh, I have very mixed feelings about Teach for America itself as an organization. Okay. Um, uh, some of those critiques have been answered by their changes since I was there um, t 20 years ago when I was joining that organization and in its founding, I would say probably 15 years, it was basically a very elite organization. And that meant that it was largely taking white or majority, very, very privileged young men or women who were super, super elite, right? Like their selection process, like one in 12, I think the year that I was a part of it. And then they would send those, those, those people to these very, very poor minority areas and schools. And the idea was that they were supposed to somehow like help these children and teach them so well that they were going to change the entire course of those, those kids' futures without any real training beyond like support structures and a five-week training camp. And they were gonna be able to do that because they were so excellent, right? Okay. They're such leaders or whatever. Uh, this is problematic in all sorts of ways. <laughs> um, Especially problematic, I think, is assuming basically that you're going to put people into a position of being a part of a sort of white savior complex. Um, and then there are the problems of sort of cultural belonging. And there's the question of what two years is and how much of a drop in the bucket that is. And then there's the question of the efficacy of those teachers in the classroom. Um, I will say that the, the positions that Teach for America puts people in, the, those teaching situations are often so difficult that I think even someone with a really excellent traditional MA in education is really going to struggle um, there. And I, I think that Teach for America had to eat some humble pie, which they did. So what they found was that their teachers, um, I was a part of, I think, the study that first established this, but they found that their teachers do as well as veteran teachers in the schools that they're in. Okay. How better? Okay. Equal. They're, okay. they're a wash. And you can imagine that this is accomplished by 70, 80 hour weeks, right? Yep. And all of this endless training and support 
and that in fact no one knows very much about the craft of teaching when you start out and that certainly a five weeks is not an adequate training um, although I think that there is a possibility of training on the ground and I think for what they were trying to do then they were doing something um, one thing that has made me still support Teach for America very tentatively is the fact that that today they now recruit from local areas so they recruit heavily let's say in the state of Mississippi to place people in the Mississippi Delta they want to get students who want to stay within their communities or close to them and who want to give back, right? So they recruit at HBCUs and they recruit at, you know, at Jackson State or whatever. And then, right. they, and then they work hard basically to make sure that their core better represents the actual students that we have in the country. So more than half of the Teach for America core now is, is um, are, are people of color. Okay. Um, which makes them, you know, I mean, I think it's like, it's incredibly low nationally. Seven uh, percent was what I was going to pull out of my head, but that could be wrong. So don't, don't it's count me on close. that. It's, 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 really, it's really low, right? And so just that one stat alone made me sort of forgive some of the extremes of Teach for America um, and, and organizations like it that really want to like place people in without the training. A part of me also thinks that it is really important that we support people who are going to go in the classroom long term and that you know, and, and that education is actually an art and that there is a, you know what I mean? A whole intellectual framework for understanding how to go about teaching. I had to teach myself a lot of those things. Yep. Um, and I, you know what I mean? I even went back and really tried to like fill in gaps in my knowledge between my first and second year. And in the summer, I spent four months reading everything I could. And you know that I don't know that it's adequate to say that that made me into an educator, that that was equal to me going and getting a traditional MA. Um, I think that there is still value in those programs. And in as much as Teach for America tries to like devalue those programs, which I think is sometimes an outcome, I think that's also a problem. I, I, think, that, I think that Teach for America has needed to eat some humble pie. And they have in some ways, but they still have this rhetoric, right? You know, one day all children, um, you know, and this idea that like, you're going to go in and single-handedly sort of like change the trajectory of a child's life. Right. I still find that part of it problematic. Um, right. I agree that the cause is just that we need teachers who want to work hard for kids who are in, in situations and in schools and districts and areas, you know, that are sort of out of sight, out of mind for a lot of people in this country. Um, right. Steve, yeah. Steve, before you hop in, cause I can already think what you're going to say, Steve. Um, Steve often says this, and, and I think it's important. And then I'll turn it over to you, Steve, but Steve often says, regardless of, how a person gets in, we can't sell the educator lies or this false reality when going into urban education because they'll do it and won't experience any success at all. And then they're tarnished. Like everyone isn't like you or myself. That's like, no, no, I'm gonna figure this out. I'm gonna make an impact. Their first option, they're, they're gone. And Steve, you always talk about that. So. I just wanted to make that break. I think it hurts the students. And I think, Mike, you did a great job. I had a, a couple. I had a little checklist here with me going, here's the things that I really struggle with, Teach for America. And you listed them. And I've known great educators like yourself who've come from the program and are just outstanding. But I think you listed well the, the downfalls or some of the, the deficits of the model. And I, I just think fundamentally not everybody can teach. And when you kind of say we're going to, Pick a, pick a group or you, or you downplay the, like you said, just the, 
complexity of teaching and meeting all students needs and personalizing it it's it's a super complex profession and to say a couple of weeks and we're ready to go I, I think diminishes the the students and the lives in front of you every day so I, I appreciate the um, what you talked about and and how you listed that that's that's important for everyone to know fast forward to the work you're doing now what excites you about it? What excites you in education? What excites you where you're at now? What you're doing? What gets you really excited to get up and tackle it every day? I mean, you know, I'm going to say something a little Pollyannish and say the students, but, um, but I think, well, so the position that I've landed in, you know, now is working in diversity retention. Um, but I basically get to teach writing, which is sort of my natural calling. And, and well, that was my training as well, right? Because I have a master's of the fine arts in fiction writing. Um, and I, I get to go in basically and work with, these, with, with students who are, um, you know, a variety of criteria. But usually they meet two out of three criteria of being, of being first generation college students, of being low income, or being students of color. And usually they are all three. Mm -hmm. um, and I get to teach those students writing um, in terms of their own lives and experiences, right? Um, I get to choose the curriculum and, and I get to sort of define my own pedagogy. And so, you know, I get to teach those kids about the ideology of the American dream and sort of interrogating that and their place in, in the country. I get to teach those students about education, um, about the educational system that we have K through 12, its inequities, but perhaps also its intentions and its strengths. Um, you know, I get to teach them about John Dewey I get to talk to them about um, people like educators Mike Rose and his and his pedagogy of of trying to both have connection to students and also consider the diversity of those students' backgrounds. And I get to teach some radical stuff and see how they like it. Things like um, educator Bettina Love's book um, on abolitionist pedagogy. I think it's called "We Want to Do More Than Just Survive." Mm -hmm. I really love this book. Um, oh yeah. Um, and I actually really love her work. And, and the students really respond to those things. And so they're able to sort of think about basically why they're at college, what they're trying to do, what they want, what the sort of places and systems and institutions are that have brought them to where they are and where they want to go. And that work, I think, will always excite me. Um, when I see kids finding their own voices and confidence in themselves and sort of being able to not feel erased in the classroom, but feel seen, um, I find that work to be exciting now, and I find thinking about it to be exciting um, even today, even having done it for, this is my 15th year, um, end of my 15th year, basically in this position working with these kids. Um, so that, that does sort of keep me going. The, the, stuff that, um, the stuff that doesn't excite me <laughs> is, you know, is the being a part of an institution that doesn't always value that work, watching them shuffle resources away from the sort of work I do and all this stuff that I guess gets in the way, right? Of, I was of the just getting ready to ask. I was just getting ready to ask. And I think Steve was probably too. Steve, you got a follow-up to that or can I hop in? Yeah, I, I was just gonna let, uh, keep your question, Eugene. I was just gonna follow up when you talked about some of the success. How, how do you measure your success with that? Is it the effective domain, the confidence, the self-esteem, and knowing if that's built up the rest of follow? Or how do you measure to know you're getting success with your work. So, you know, I mean, I, I think that it, right. I think it, I mean, first student feedback is no proxy for, you know what I mean? Achievement, especially student satisfaction. Um, but I do like to, 
to look at student evaluations, and I have for many years to sort of see what students are getting out of it and how they're responding. And also to see, you know, as I often find out from those sorts of processes, that, that there's someone I missed, right? There's always like one person who, who, you, who you didn't connect to, who secretly maybe felt, you know what I mean, took a comment wrong or, or you, who misunderstood you. Um, and so I, I like to sort of look at those things, but that's about a sort of improvement. I really think that the product is the answer, right? And what I mean is, um, you know, I, I get to track most of these students for two quarters, right? So about two thirds of the year. Um, and, and in each of those classes, we have a sort of portfolio based um, process of evaluation, right? So we're working through multiple drafts and we're sort of engaging within them. There's only so much that I think can happen within one 10 week quarter. But I, I can tell you that within, you know, within like a two thirds of a year, of a year period, when I go back and look at like someone's first essay or, or their first initial sort of like attempt to write something for my class. And then I look at what it is that they turn in at the end. Right. right. And the final product of like, you know what I mean? Their long paper on education or um, I do an identity unit, right. Where I basically ask students to locate themselves and try to write about where they're coming from. I look at that personal essay and, and the ways that we've talked about and looked at different models of, of writers who have done this and then how to do that in, I, there's really extraordinary work that a lot of them are doing. Um, and it's, you know, and I can see you can, you can actually perceive not just the improvement, but sort of the, the quality and, and the confidence. And so I, I'm a, I am more of a, on the subjective side of things. I think some testing is necessary, but man, the, the way that the, the way that this country focuses on tests and teaches to test to me is the wrong focus, especially in a K through 12 situation, but even in college, right? Right. I, I like to think that what happens is that those students in the classes that I teach, um, th that, that, that what is happening in those classes is going to stick through and carry with them much further, right? And that maybe we won't see the end of sort of the positive effects of that work in the course of even, you know, the two-class arc where there's actual tangible things to look at, but that hopefully we could measure that with retention. I've right. tried the office I work for to, like, give me retention numbers <laughs> for the students that come through my classes, and, like, it's just too much for them. They can't they don't have a way of, I guess, like managing that paperwork and everything. Right. Um, and so I do feel sometimes I worry that, you know, maybe, it, maybe this isn't doing what I think it's doing, but I have students come back to me and tell me, you made a difference. Years, you know what I mean? This Absolutely. made a difference. That was the thing that made a difference. And so, yeah. Now, now Mike, we've interviewed a lot of talented people and many have different skills in different areas but I think you may be one of the people that are probably most similar to us by the way you attack work and your drive and clear cut laser like vision for what you're trying to get accomplished. So I'm going to ask you this question because this happened to me several times throughout my career and I'm sure it's happened to Steve, but how do you respond to, well, Mike, you're good with those kids. Well, go, go fix. I can't do nothing with you. Go fix that one. Or, or the opposite, and, and I'm trying to, to word this delic delicately to where um, it doesn't come off wrong, but, uh, but you know they shouldn't be here. Like, like, how do you deal within those spaces? Because, honestly, you can really develop compassion fatigue real quick. Like if you don't have a, a strategy or a filter in, filter out or something healthy, you will go crazy being in the position that you are in 
because I've been in, I've been there, Steve been there, you're there. How do you manage that? Because everybody can't manage that piece. I mean, <laughs> there's so many layers to that question. Let's see. So, I mean, the first thing that I, the first thing is that, the first thing is that I actively, if I'm dealing with administrators or other educators within my department or within other departments on campus, and, and they're trying to, and I'm, and I'm hearing attitudes like that about the kids that I teach, I, I take those things on head on. <laughs> okay. Right. You know, um, yep. I, I, I'm, I'm pretty like, I'm pretty emph like emphatic about the fact that, for example, that the classes I'm teaching are not remedial. You right. know what I mean? The, the, like, in fact, the kids that I'm teaching are exceptional because the number of like of, of interlapping barriers to success that they have overcome just to make it to like a tier one institution in college, right. And just to be there in those seats, like those are already tremendous barriers. And so, you know, I, I try to fight those things. The, the responsibility though, of trying to do that and of trying to like reach every kid and then knowing that sometimes, and this definitely happened to me in Mississippi, right. This is why my book centered around different narratives of kids and the, the ones I failed with are the ones you remember, right? Mm -hmm. I do tend to pour too much energy into, into the kids who like maybe have the, the most, um, who, who most sort of like demand my attention, right? Who are maybe sort of like drowning for air or who are calling attention to themselves through like maybe behaviors that we shouldn't see in a college classroom. Um, and I definitely have to actively fight centering my sort of self-worth and also pouring too much of my energy into only those kids who like do that because I've realized that like sometimes the quiet kids need you too yep. right the well-behaved kids who like do all this stuff and like would never like wave their arms around and like shout out like I'm here I need help and so one of the ways I try to like make sure that I that I don't get lost with that is that I make the centerpiece of my pedagogy um, conferences with students on papers and I make time basically to meet with every single person in my class with regards to their first paper where I'm getting 15 quality minutes and I can give them a ton of personal attention on their work, but I can also, you know, sit there in a room with them and talk with them about like their lives and what, what's happening in it and where they're coming from and what's going on. And after I do that in every single class, you know, the whole tenor of the class shifts because now I have that relationship with all of those kids individually. Right. And they know that I have sort of an open door and that includes the kids who I might miss. And so I think that that's my closest way of saying that's how I try to avoid centering all my energy on like, you know, the, the kid who's, who's like stopped coming and I keep emailing them to try to come or the person who comes to class and never turns anything in, you know what I mean? And is like on their phone or trying to be on their phone the whole time class is happening. <laughs> yep. um, you know, it, it, you, you, I would say I've learned, but I've also learned that I'm still willing to like, you know what I mean? Like go down with the ship <laughs> when right. it comes to some kids. Yep. Um, and I can't say I can ever protect myself from that. Um, but that's the best, that's the best way I can say I've managed to like last. And I, I would say that, and I'm saying that I get tired. <laughs> that's what makes you a superhero educator, Mike. I see you Breaking down barriers for students. I see you going above and beyond lifelong learning. Advocate. Advocate. Uh, I love that. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we need more of. We need more mics out there. We need more people breaking down the walls and advocating for students. I would see the frustration. I could see if people let you go and be Mike, you can continue to thrive. I would see the frustration that comes in with a lot of high-performing educators is when 
the governance or the structure of the institution, wherever you're at, puts barriers or artificial barriers that aren't good for students or aren't good for uh, the mission and where you need to go with students, that's probably the frustration. Would you agree with that as far as what you're seeing? I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, you know, in the, in the last 10 years at the institution that I'm at, you know, I saw the program that, that funds me and, and whose students I work with, you know, go from being an incredibly sort of like vigorous community with resources put towards the students and student programming and student support, right? And counselors basically meeting with these students frequently and really trying to help them and help guide them who are focused on, you know, those specific students' needs. And, and I watched the institution, you know, get rid of the good leadership that they had, force the best counselors out, um, restructure so that they have half the resources that they did, put half those, the resources that they took towards things that are basically for show and it really don't have very much to do with the actual students and student success and retention. And then, you know, claim that they were doing, that they were focusing on making all of this better, right? And, and that, you know, that sort of thing is, I'm sure this is not the only institution that I'm at <laughs> that, right. that, where this happens, right? This is, I think this sort of thing happens all over. Um, yeah. I got one more question. Uh, and this is what I call a rapid response, Mike, where you complete the sentence. So I have four beginnings of the sentence for, uh, I'll start the sentence and then you finish it up with what pops in your head. I wish that. educators were treated with more respect. I wish school leaders knew how to support teachers so that they could really thrive and succeed. I wish politicians understood the value of education and were willing to create budgets that actually supported the work educators do. I wish Eugene. Come on. You can't do this every week. <laughs> I wish Eugene nothing but the best. <laughs> there, now that's the best answer I've heard for that question. Mike, I wanted you to challenge him to a wrestling match or something. What? That's, that's what I wanted right there. This is all peace and love. Yeah. I want the Stanford wrestling to come back out of you, Mike. The competitive you know, wrestling. The, I, I, the, the heart is there, but the, uh, the back is not. So. <laughs> All right, so Mike, I have a couple, couple firepower questions for you too. And then I'll give you, as we wind down, I'll give you the hardest question of the night after that. Oh, great. Okay, so let's see. I want to go with the coronavirus has done what to Asian American learners in your area? Oof. Um, I mean, I think the coronavirus has, so what I want, has, has invigorated and exacerbated already existing racism that gets in the way of the learning, basically, of, of Asian American students in my area. Yep. All right, I can see that. Um, does higher ed understand k-12 and does k-12 understand higher ed the only reason why i'm asking you this is because you've been on both sides of the fence yeah no i think the i think the answer is absolutely not <laughs> um okay. at least in my experience um i i tend to find that 
and I and I put a lot of the fault of this on on higher ed. Quite mm-hmm. honestly, um, I think that I think that all sorts of things that we know about how students learn and about good teaching is thrown out the window at the college level, where all of a sudden you let go to this big lecture style class model, right? Where a professor stands on a podium elevated above the students and supposedly beams the knowledge into those students' heads that is then regurgitated onto like tests. And that is called education that people are paying for. When, when you know, everyone who works in an ed school, all of our ed professors know that like there's tons of research that shows, right? That this is not how people learn and learn well. Um, and so I think that, that higher ed tends to throw out all of the lessons about teaching from K through 12 in a way that often deserves students who are making the transition, right? From, from in some cases, at least really professional and excellent teaching that they were getting that was student-centered and all of a sudden you have some other model. So I think, I think at, the, at the college level, I think that there's a disconnect. And then I also think that the university tends to do a really bad job of communicating to K through 12 what they're looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Like yep. what it is that they want basically people to be able to do by the time that they hit the ground, you know, in terms of like skills and benchmarks and, and information like that. That's Absolutely. been my experience anyway, yeah. Absolutely. Now the toughest question of the night. So we're in Wisconsin, and I noticed something that the the hat that you're wearing on your head. <laughs> and so the question is, in the NBA finals, if and when the season returns, if it comes down to our Milwaukee Bucks versus your Portland Trailblazers, who wins that series? Oh wow! Well, so this is gonna re- this would require a series of miracles. So let me see if I can reason my way through this in a way that'll justify what my heart wants to say. So, right now the Trailblazers are three and a half games out of eighth place in the West. Right? Uh, other than Damian Lillard, they had way too many injuries this year to be doing much. Um, and Lillard being on fire himself is not enough to carry a team through. You know what I mean? Through through a certain number of series. So I gotta say that if the Blazers came back that would mean we were playing some of the regular season and they would have had to have gotten so incredibly unstoppably hot to have gotten themselves back into that eighth spot and then they would have had defeated the one seed to get there right just to get into the second round so by the time that they that they hit the 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 final round i mean i don't know what's happened uh you know uh yusuf nurkic is healed from his like catastrophic achilles injury apparently and back because we stopped so late and uh Collins's injury to his arm has come back and he's uh, taken three leaps in terms of level. So maybe, maybe somehow the Portland miracle is there and then Portland, Portland wins that series in the seventh game because Lillard just drops 70 out of his mind. The reality, of course, I think that we both know is the Bucks have a pretty good chance at going to the finals this year. Um, I'd love to see Giannis take one. Honestly, I, 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 I don't, I'm just not, I'm not a Lakers fan. I respect LeBron, but I'm just – I'm not a Lakers fan. Oh, man, Mike. Yeah, the interview was Mike's going good. That's, it that's was a good interview until you started talking about LeBron. <laughs> you know, I, like, I don't hate him. Uh, he's been my – I've always rooted against him. But, you know. But, oh. oh but, but I can't deny his talent. It's, it's I got you. I got you. So here's how we end, Mike. Um, we like to give uh, our guests, when we have guests – an opportunity to, if you have a product you want to push, 
or social media or whatever projects, whatever you got. If you want to push anything, like we're getting, getting ready to give you that option. And it usually goes like this. I'll go first. Steve goes second. You go third. And then we close out the show. All right. Okay. So I'm going to go first. And, and before, before I go, Steve, this is the book. Let me see if I can get this right. Uh, it's not going to show. But here we go. Chief Diversity Officer. It's the book I was talking to you about last night, Steve. And uh, Mike, um, although it's coming from like a person over that space, it's such a fascinating book. I would suggest you to get that book. I just always have books. I, I, don't, I don't know the author. I, I'm not tied to them any type of way at all, but I find it fascinating. And parts of the conversation we were having, it, it goes right back to that book. So something for you all to consider. All right. So I want to... Um, highlight all the educators that's still out there working hard through COVID-19. I know it's tough. Keep pushing. Um, and for many of us, the school year is slowly winding down. Uh, we have confidence in you. You can do it. Uh, also want to give a reminder to the listeners out there for the book, Superhero Educator in stores now, Barnes and Noble, Amazon. Uh, one more book uh, I want to point to everyone's attention, Gumbo for the Soul, Volume 3, yours truly wrote Chapter 53. Steve, go ahead. Well, I want to thank you, Mike, for your intelligence, for your thoughtfulness. It was imperative for our listeners and people across America to hear that. So I want to thank you, Mike. And I want our listeners to get connected to the Center for Urban Education Ministries, a national nonprofit group that's working relentlessly to strengthen urban education. So www.cuemnational.org. Mike? You know, um, I'll give a plug for my book teacher from University Press in Mississippi that's out there because we talked about it today and because I want that book to have um, some life and keep going. Um, and you can get it again, I think, really everywhere, Barnes & Noble and Amazon and hopefully, hopefully bookstores near you as well. Um, I just want to actually really thank the both of you for having me on today. Um, I really, I really appreciate the opportunity to sort of talk to some other, some, to some educators who are thinking about these issues that, you know, that I don't get very many chances to sort of talk about and see people featuring. I'm, I'm a fan of the, uh, of the podcast now and I'll, uh, I'll keep checking in and, and listening to you folks do the good work, spread the gospel out there. So thanks a lot it. for having me. Appreciate it. And you, you always got a seat here. Um, whenever, whenever you need to promote or get some off your chest, you have a seat here. And we'll definitely connect down the road, I, I'm sure, because sometimes what's happening in your area may be different than what's happening here. We just got to just figure it out um, one way or the other. So, like, we'll definitely reach back out to you. We definitely appreciate it. And um, I, I'll tell you this. A lot of times we reach out to people. They're like, yeah, yeah, we'll do it. Or you don't hear anything at all. So I, I, we, we, we do definitely appreciate you. Class act, professional, all the way across the board. So we definitely appreciate you. And on that note, Mike, you hang on for a second. But on that note, for the listeners out there, uh, we're just about done. You have a great week. We'll see you the same time, same place. And we are out. Thanks again for listening to our Superhero Education Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and key concepts to battle the chaos and save the day for all students. Boldly transform lives and be a superhero educator. 